And the question that I was thinking about, and the best way that I could kind of come up with what I want to talk about is this, this question. Do I need God to discover myself and be fulfilled? Um, and the reason that I got thinking about this was because actually I was trying to think about stuff that might be useful for the group here to talk about. And I was thinking through everybody here and some of the things that I struggle with and some of the things that I feel like we might need to hear. And I just uh, was asking Kirby about it, and she was like, hey, you should talk about some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about this morning. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that might be useful. And one of the big reasons why I thought it might be good to ask that question, do I need God to discover myself and be fulfilled, is because 21st century Americans are all about like self-fulfillment, right? Um, and so that's kind of hard to escape in my life. You know, I, I want to provide for me. I want to figure me out. And I want to be able to be my best self, right? That's kind of what the terms that we throw around, the ideas that we have, um, pull myself up by my own bootstraps kind of mentality. And I don't really think that that's the gospel. And we're going to talk about that this morning and why that matters. Um, But I wanted to spend kind of a moment putting something on the board here. And I guess this is part of why this lesson's maybe a little odd because I don't normally draw on the board. Um, to kind of illustrate some of what people have decided is how humans are and why we need to be kind of self-actualized or self-realized, right? I need to fulfill my own person. I need to become who I'm going to be, and that's going to be my ability, my thoughtfulness that gets me there, right? So I'm just going to draw kind of, you guys may have heard of this, the hierarchy of needs. Um, Anyway, it's kind of a... philosophy or a psychology that kind of goes into this that's a terrible triangle but hopefully you're with me on this right so basically i'm going to put it pretty simply at the bottom right the most foundational is uh physiological or i'm just going to say physical needs hopefully you can see that if not it's not super important but like right food water shelter things like that fall into kind of that uh realm the next thing that you have i don't know if these are going to break up evenly but whatever The next realm that you have, right, are uh, what you might term as, like, (laughs) safety. So I'm just going to put it that way. So you have safety needs, right? Like, do I feel safe? Am I secure? That's kind of your next tier, right? So once you deal with, like, what I need literally to survive, your next question, according to many philosophers and many psychologists would be that. Am I safe? Am I secure? Right? So then after that, once you can deal with those two, you come to kind of this next uh, row in this pyramid, and that is, uh, I'm going to say love needs. Right? Love needs. Uh, Do I have meaningful, intimate relationships? Right? Do I have friends? Things like that. Right? So once you deal with the physical needs, once you deal with you feel safe and secure, that's usually the next thing that psychologists are going to say you're going to try to deal with. Do I have friendships? Do I have relationships? The next one is going to be, I'm just going to put it this way, esteem needs. Um, and so, like, do I feel like I have purpose? Do I feel important? Those kinds of questions fall into that. And then lastly, what... Psychologists are going to say 
you've been able to reach only if you've addressed all of this, you'll be self-actualized. You have become your best self. You have the ability to discover your talents, to uh, live a life that best suits you and that is realized to your fullest potential. Right? So that's kind of what psychologists, philosophers have come up with, this hierarchy of needs. You start down here and you work your way up and eventually you'll be everything that you think you should be. Um, and why I think that's important is because I think that's how we think a lot of times. I believe that's how we're, our culture has taught us to be, you know? And if we don't go against the grain intentionally, this ends up being the way we approach life, right? I mean, that's just kind of the way the current's going, and so if I don't intentionally swim upstream, this is how I'm going to approach life. Whether I realize this is what I'm following or not, this is generally kind of what we do, Right? Let's deal with the basics and work our way up to the best me that I can be, right? And while I think there's some good in that, I think it is good to have goals. I think it is good to realize that there are kind of categories in my life that I need to kind of tackle and be aware of. And I do think it is good to have relationships and feel like that you have a purpose and you're important and that it's nice to feel safe and you do need to eat. Right? And it is good to realize your talents. We spent a lot of time talking about our abilities and talents and how we can use them in the church. This, the point of this pyramid is this is the pinnacle of your life. And the point of this pyramid is to say, like, if you can get there, right, you've done everything as a person that you should have done. And I don't think that's true. I don't think the gospel teaches us that. And so I think part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this this morning is not just because our culture teaches us this is the best we can do, but also because as Christians we need to realize that this is actually contrary to the gospel. And what I want to propose to you this morning is the gospel sort of flips this on its head. And what the gospel actually is going to teach us, if you want to go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1, is what we need to do is we need to just kind of mark this out, you know? It doesn't matter how I think about myself just as a thing, you know? It doesn't matter what talents I feel that I have or what I think that I should use my skills in or how I best see myself, right? What the Bible is trying to get us to do is to realize that God has actualized us. Right? And what I mean by that is God is the one that has told us our potential. God is the one that has told us our reality, who we are, how we can best use ourselves. Right? And while I do think that we do have personal, individual talents, I think God's the one that directs those. He says, okay, if you are this kind of person, if you live this kind of life, this is how you need to be. So at the end of the, the day, the top of the pyramid shouldn't be me living out how I envision myself. It should be me getting back to who God sees me to be, right? And so that's what I mean by like being God actualizes. In Genesis chapter 1, if you look in verses 26 and 27, um, verses 26 and 27, it's just a couple verses here, but it kind of gets to the heart of the matter. God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. What God is telling us here, I think is a lot of stuff, but as it relates to this lesson, is that ultimately the actuality, the reality of who we try to be is really the image of God. And that is the pinnacle of who we can be. Now, if we understand what God is teaching us here is not only that we are made inherently in this image, there are some realities about God, there are some shadows of God that are expressed in my being, right? But what ends up happening, of course, if you know the story that kind of happens in chapter 2 and chapter 3, is pretty immediately Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, decide that the image of God is not something that they really want. Because what ends up happening is the serpent comes along and he tempts Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of a tree that God said that they shouldn't eat of. And when he comes along in chapter 3, look at um, chapter 3 of Genesis with me. In verse 5, this is what is said by the serpent. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now if we just stop at that one verse... This snake is tempting Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit that God said you can't eat of. And so, while they are in the image of God, right, what they decide is to listen to the serpent. And you know what his appeal is? God doesn't really know what he's talking about. And really what God is trying to preserve is him being God. And if you eat of this fruit, you're really going to be like him. And you know what happened in that moment? is from actually being everything that God designed them to be, they decided that they didn't want to be actualized or fulfilled by God, in God. They wanted to be their own God. They wanted to be self-actualized. I decide who I am, right? And that's really what Satan tempted them with. You get to decide who you are, right? And so what ended up happening, right, was sin. Sin was the product of that. When I decide God isn't my purpose, He isn't what fulfills me, and He isn't the one that makes me who I am, He isn't the one that gets to decide who is the best me, that's when I sin. That's when I'm tempted to do things that break the mold, right? And that I end up saying, I'm just going to define me the way I see it. And so I think that's why... Self-actualization, the self-fulfillment, the self-reliance, when we live that kind of life, ends up actually being contrary to the gospel in a lot of ways. Um, And so we don't want to be like Adam and Eve, you know? I know all of us have made mistakes, and if you're a Christian, on some level you've acknowledged, like, I've made mistakes that I want to change, right? So how do we kind of come back to this? You know, how do we come back to, like, God being the pinnacle of our life, Him being the one that fulfills us? Him being the one that uh, I discover myself, so to speak, through, right? And that's really what I want to talk about this morning. Um, I don't have a lot to say about this, but I do have a couple things that I want to hit on. Let's turn to John chapter 4. I mean 14, sorry. John chapter 14, which is what James read for us this morning. I won't read the whole section again, um, but I do want to highlight a couple things here to help us kind of think about this. You know, if, if God is the one that gets to decide who we are, 
which is what the Bible proposes. He created us. He made, it, made us in his image, and it's when we kind of mar that image that sin comes around. And so if God is the one that created us, I believe the Bible is teaching us he's the only one that can restore that image. You know, when we took it into our own hands to kind of smear or mar that image, he's the only one capable of fixing it, like bringing us back to the place where we could be in the image of God again. And I really think if you were going to sum up Jesus' work, that'd be it. He's made it possible to go back to being like clearly and perfectly in the image of God. But in John chapter 14, we learn a couple things about the specifics of that. And look in verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think this is why it matters when we start to ask ourselves, all right, I don't, want, I don't want me to be the center of everything. I don't want how I see myself to be what determines everything. I don't want uh, my preferences. You know, I want God's. And I think that's the appeal that I would make to anyone that hasn't made that decision is like, you need to get to a place where you want God's will for your life. But the next question is like, how, you know? Like, how do, I, how do I get there? And I think what Jesus is saying to us as it relates to what we're talking about is, like, it's him, right? When you look at these three things that Jesus says, he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. Why it matters that God is the one that restores us is reflected in these verses. For instance, I cannot will myself um, into my best self. I cannot, like, pull myself up by my own bootstraps to be the best person that I can be in God's eyes. It's impossible. I've already broken that image, and there's no way for me to, like, will myself back to it. There's no way for me to, like, fulfill the potential that God sees in me by myself. There's just no way to do it. Biblically, there's no, like, class I can take. There's no, like, self-help book I can read. There's no, like routine I can get in that's going to bring me back to that image. So what Jesus is proposing to us here by teaching us about himself is he's saying that God is the only way, and by saying I am the way, he's saying that he's God, right? And so when we look at this text, I am the way, the truth, and the life, there's a couple of things I want to say. About Jesus being the way, what I took out of this as it relates to what we're talking about here is there's no way for you alone to go the way you need to go. Right? If I'm going to be actualized by God, if I'm going to be fulfilled in God's eyes, if I'm going to be everything that I should be and could be in God's eyes, Jesus is the only way that I can get there. There's no way I can do it by myself. There's no other guru or teacher that I can go through to be there. Jesus is the only one that gets me there. The second part is, Jesus is the truth. There is no reality or fulfillment outside of Jesus. Why that matters is because if I'm going to get back into the image of God, if I'm going to be at that place where God fills me, there's no reality, there's no alternative to Jesus. You know, sometimes I'm tempted to think that 
other ways of life are just as valuable in getting me into the image of God. You know, I look at some of the beautiful things that other cultures have produced. I mean, other religions outside of Christianity have produced. I mean, like there's beautiful concepts in Hinduism. And there's beautiful ideas in Buddhism. And there's nice things about Islam. And there's great things in Judaism. And I mean, you could go down the line and see value just as a person and as a culture in those things. And some of the teaching is correct and nice and it appeals. But if it's not the truth, if it's not Jesus, is it going to get me back to the image of God? And Jesus' claim is it's not. It's not. He's the truth. And the last part of this uh, kind of threefold claim that Jesus makes is that he is the life. The way I kind of understood this, and I think there's probably a lot more that you can draw to each one of these, but what's stuck with me is um, there's kind of, there is no completeness and there's no way of living in the image of God outside of Jesus. That's the kind of, as it related to this, that's the kind of way I was thinking about this. If Jesus is the life, certainly... There's no life outside of him. There's no breath. There's no eternity. There's none of those things that maybe we think about typically. But certainly, there is no life that I can live in the image of God outside of Jesus. I think that's part of this statement. God is life. He's breath. He's the creator that made us in the image. And Jesus is inherently a part of that. And so to be back in that image, I can't exclude the one whom... I'm bearing the image of. And Jesus is saying that's him. He's, he's the life. So part of, uh, part of, I think, the difficulty in this reality, the difficulty of doing this is it feels like I'm not in control. You know? Um, this is a really appealing kind of way to go about life to me personally on a lot of levels because I tend to believe that I'm a fairly logical thinker. I don't know if that's really true, but that's how I think about myself. And so, like, this makes a lot of sense to me, you know? Like, to take care of what you have to have first, like, fundamentally, to even have a chance at this stuff, that makes sense. Like, I have to keep breathing. I have to stay alive to even have a shot at any of this other stuff, right? So that makes sense. And then to say, like, you should feel safe before you can, you know, worry about whether or not you feel important, that makes sense to me. I should feel like I have, I I should want relationships uh, that are loving. I should want friendships. Like, that makes sense to me. That should probably inform this a little bit. Maybe that makes me feel important. It makes me feel valuable on some level. And it's in the culmination of all those things that I can feel like I'm living my best life. It makes a lot of sense just on, like, in Josh's brain, in America. It makes a lot of sense to me. But to do what God's saying, is where he's saying, you know what, you're in my image, and when you start breaking away from my image, when you put self here as, like, the pinnacle, like Adam and Eve did, I want to be like God, and I'm going to decide what's best for me. That seems out of control to go back to that, doesn't it? Like, I don't get to be me. I have to be in the image of God. And that's not necessarily always the thing that I want to choose, you know? 
Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But the point is, it's not by definition my will. Right? But you know what God says? Like, if you do this, if you let him fulfill you, actualize you, be who you need to be, he takes care of the rest of this stuff. That's what the gospel teaches us. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This is a long reading, but I want you to bear with me here um, because we're going to end up reading the whole chapter. And I want you to think about a couple things as we're reading through this. One, primarily being, first of all, the esteem needs. Focus on that. We're going to read 1 through 10 and just think about all the ways in which God is promising you, a, a, promising you this feeling of like accomplishment and prestige and importance in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, okay? Uh, let me get there. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, uh, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared b- beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I think it's hard to separate the first part of Ephesians from the second part that we're about to read, and it's hard to even categorize this just as esteem needs. I think you see love needs in this as well. But just think about like how God esteems us just in this section, like how much importance he places on us, how much value is there and what he's talking about, how he's been able to save those who are in Christ, and how much value he placed in you, and how much work and preparation went into being able to pull you from someone who is dead to someone who's being alive. Or to borrow the, the way we've been talking about this whole time, to, to take you from the image of yourself back into the image of God. There's a lot that God has done for us that meets this kind of proposition of needing esteem, needing value, needing to be um, uh, prestigious, right? Feel important. The God, the creator of the universe, has made you feel important by paying attention to you and giving you a place. But let's continue reading here and let's focus in on how God gives us this sense of love, which I think is a lot what has to do with love is like belonging, right? Like you want to be loved because you want to feel like you belong. You want to love, to have a place. So think about that as we read verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of, wealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through whom we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are a fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I mean, do you see relationships and love and belongingness that is provided by Jesus in that section? You know, to be in the image of God, which is really what this whole section is talking about. You've gone from not being in the image of God to being in the image of God. And what does that mean? It means you have value. Like you're important. It means you have a place to belong. Like you have relationships and people to care about, right? But what about safety and physical needs? Is that something that God promises as well? Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And in verse 28, it says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what does he mean? No tragedy will ever happen in my life. I think what he means is elaborated on beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you ask me, like, does God care about our safety? I'd say absolutely. Now, does that mean like every little trouble in life is going to be squashed before it ever gets to me? No. But at the end of the day, Romans 8 is true. Who's going to separate me from the love of God? Is death or tribulation or persecution? No. In fact, in verse 37, it's those things that we conquer through Christ. So I think God cares about whether we can feel secure. I mean, he spends this whole section in Romans 8 telling us that Jesus is the way to feel secure. And then lastly, does God even care about, you know, physical stuff? Is he going to care about me getting some food and a house to stay in? 
Well, Matthew chapter 6 addresses this when Jesus himself speaks. We'll read verse 25 right there. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, about what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. God is more than willing to take care of the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, and he promises to take care of you even more than them. And in this text, the question arises that I kind of want to end on for us. And it's in verse 33. Sorry, it's not a question, but verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things. Right? Specifically in this text, he's talking about the physical stuff, but I'm suggesting to you all of this stuff God will take care of. If you start here and let God actualize or fulfill you. Let him be the reality that you're seeking to live by and fulfill. Rather than starting here, and only when circumstances are just right, you get to define who you are. Rather, start by God telling you who you are, and let him take care of the rest. And so I, I hope this lesson's been helpful for you. Like I said, it's not a lesson, a type of lesson that I typically talk about, but I felt like it'd be good for us to think about um, maybe how the world sees life and why the gospel turns it on its head, right? Because it almost seems like the least important to God is this. And so this whole pyramid is kind of turned upside down, and you start here and everything else comes in Christ. So if you're not in Jesus this morning, if you've never believed in him, if you've never been baptized, um, you're not in God's image, and all of this stuff hasn't taken care of itself for you. And so I'd suggest you think pretty seriously about that. If you are a believer, know that this stuff is taken care of. Don't be anxious like the text said in Matthew chapter 6 about any of this, because Jesus takes care of all of this for us. He gives us value, he gives us belonging, he takes care of us and keeps us secure, and we know that he cares for us as his creation. And so if there's any way that we can help you this morning, if you're struggling with this, if you've never even started trying to be in God's image, think about that while we're singing this song because while this is nice to hear, it doesn't really mean anything if it, if it doesn't change the way you think or challenge you in some way. So try to, try to challenge yourself, try to think about this message as we're singing the song that Stephen's leading us in.